Well, good morning, everybody. And we had a baptism this service. For those of you who are late, we had three last service. It was a good day so far. Four people. Praise God. It's cool. Yeah. So I, uh, I've already met some people. Last week was your first week at Kingsway. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Starting a new series called Make Love Work. And the whole idea here is to go through the book Songs of Solomon, sometimes called Song of Songs. And the reason it's called that is because in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, we learn that Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he wrote roughly 3,000 proverbs in 1,005 songs, except in Solomon, or sorry, Songs of Solomon, Chapter 1, verse 1, he says this. This is Solomon's song of songs, more wonderful than any other. So he writes a thousand of five songs, and he says, man, this is my crown jewel. This is the best one I made. And the question comes up, why? Because this is a beautiful love story. For those of you who uh, think that manly men don't enjoy poetry, Solomon just proved you wrong. He is a renaissance man. He is wise. He's powerful. He's strong. He's a king. He's got rich riches and wealth and power and love songs. So pull out a pen and piece of paper later, men, and get to it. You can do it. Okay. In this series, the goal is this. We want to dig into God's word and see what it has to say for us. What wisdom can we learn from a book that was written roughly 3,000 years ago, give or take a couple hundred years? It's pretty close to that. But there's so much wisdom. Why? Because the word of God is the truth. Always, it lasts in every generation. But you have to contextualize some of what it says, like what in the world is going on there? Why is he comparing his lover to a horse that doesn't go over well today? And we'll dig into that a little bit. And the goal will be to look and see what wisdom and stories and experiences are. I will vulnerably share some of my own successes and failures with you. In fact, I'll start with one. So I had dated a number of people prior to meeting my wife in Bible college. And because of that, I was a bit of a jaded lover. I had had a number of relationships I was in, broke up. And the thing is, I really believe all of that taught me how not to be married. Because I was used to never really working through a struggle, I was really used to never working through problems early in our marriage. We had problems, I just assumed we were going to end a divorce. True story. I've told that story before, but I say that because I am pro-dating. I know other people aren't. I'm pro-dating, but dating didn't work well for me because I didn't date in a way that set me up to succeed, to practice marriage one day. Instead, I dated in a way that was just flippant, and so it set me up to fail. There's a lot of things I had to unlearn in my marriage. So consequently, when I get to Bible college, first time I ever met my wife, apparently she's filmed a video. Her and John Knoll's wife, Gail, have filmed a video, and John and I get to be brought up on stage in the next week or two and play like the dating game, and we're going to see how well we know our wives. <laughs> By God's grace, I'll get a few answers right. Anyway, uh, when I first met her, I was actually working at a restaurant, like the little cafeteria there, and I was serving food, and I was just being an idiot. And I just remember seeing her later. We were in the same geology class. What's more exciting than geology? She sat in front of me with her boyfriend, who was a loser. <laughs> and I say that because I won, and he lost. He actually was a good man, a godly man. He was actually a pastor here in one of the local towns. I won't say his name or whatever, spare him any embarrassment. But really good man, got married, had kids, served Jesus, but he lost. I won. So sorry to his new wife. Anyway, um, and I say all that because what happened later was a girl named Lisa Lewis, who used to be on staff here, she was at that same college, and she was running something called camp teams. And she put my wife and I on the same team, and we traveled around to churches. We led worship, did skits. I would teach and preach and that kind of thing. And so we traveled around for nine months. And when you spend nine months together hanging out in a 15-passenger van and traveling to various camps and churches and places, we never stayed in the same place, but you spent a lot of time talking. And because I was so jaded and untrusting, she'd only dated that one other guy before me, and by God's grace, 
they broke up somewhere in that process, so she was available. What happened though, literally, this is not a joke, I prayed, and here's how my prayer changed. When we first met, I prayed, God, I one day, would you just help me to meet a girl like her? About three months later, my prayer changed to, God, I really enjoy my friendship with this girl, Rachel, and she's really special, but God, I've messed up every girl that I've ever dated. I really don't want to mess her up, so God, would you really help me to find a girl just like her and help her to find a really good guy who's going to treat her well? She deserves that. Three months later, no joke, my prayer changed changed to, I'm open, God, if you're open. (laughs) I don't know what you want to do, but God, if you wanted me to date her, you're going to have to show me that you want that because I... I want to honor her and protect this beautiful thing that you've made. And three months later, hey, God, is there any chance you could stir in her heart this desire for me? And what I didn't know is God was doing that all along. And so my wife was wise. She was smart. She never led on to the fact that she liked me, although she flirted plenty, but she didn't do it in any kind of aggressive, inappropriate way. In fact, usually when I asked what she thought of me, trying to stroke my own ego, she never gave in to those questions. And one thing I will say as we go through this is there is a lot of wisdom to be learned from this book about the right way and the wrong way. Even if it's a 3,000-year-old book, there's so much wisdom for us to learn from God's word. So let's dig in now to the book and see what it has to teach us today. We're gonna, this is going to primarily primarily be a focused message for people who are single and would like to be married one day. Now, there's a ton of wisdom for married people. In fact, I'm having more married couples coming up to me and saying, thank you, my spouse needed that, than I am <laughs> single people saying it. However, I will say it's weighted 70-30 here. So let me give you some background to this book. First of all, the book, some people, some scholars and theologians and pastors believe the book is an allegory. And what that means is they believe it's a story about the love that Jesus has for his church. And I will say there is something to that. That's not the camp I landed in. I landed in the other camp. There's two primary camps. I do believe there's something to that because we know marriage was created to point us to God. We know that. In fact, when we get to heaven, there is no marriage anymore because we now have God. We don't need marriage to replace God or to point us to God. And we no longer need a spouse in our lives to help kind of clean off the junk. Have you ever noticed that? How you, you become a more godly person because of your spouse, not in lack of your spouse. You become more selfish without your spouse. You become more like Christ because of them because they force you to deal with things you never wanted to deal with. And that's part of the reason God gave us marriage. So I say that because Uh, some people read it different than I do. I read it as a love story. But the story is not really linear. It's more cyclical. It doesn't necessarily just have a beginning and an end. It does get through those things. But there are moments in the stories where we're not sure. Are we talking about the past, the future? Are we talking about a dream? Like, what happened? And I'll note those as we go through. But it's kind of a cyclical, progressing story. So we go forward, and then we come back, and we talk about something. We go forward to the next thing. We come back. And sometimes we're not sure where we are in time. And you just have to accept that as you read it. It's poetry from 3,000 years ago. Don't place upon it something from your culture today. But the last thing I would say is this. I do believe the allegory thing has something to it, and here's why. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 25, he makes this very interesting point. He says this. For husbands, he's talking about marriage. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and he gave his life for her. So as we read Songs of Solomon, we're looking at a love story, but ultimately this points us to the love of Jesus, and if nothing else, husbands, if you would do this, you'd fix your marriage. So, let's jump into the book. There are a few primary voices in the book. There's one who speaks for only one sentence. We'll get to that later, it's around chapter five. But throughout the book, there's two primary voices, and I wanna introduce them to you quickly. There's the young woman, that's what the New Living Translation calls her. In modern translations, there's no verses, realize, or sorry, in the original translation, there's no verses, there's no headings. 
So the modern translators have tried to add in headings, and one of the headings you'll see is young woman, and depending on your translation, it'll say something else. She's often called the Shulamite girl, and we don't know exactly what that means because she's from Shulama, possibly, but we don't know where Shulama is. It's either a town that we don't know of, it doesn't exist, or it's because Shulamite could mean peaceful. It's like the word shalom, Shulama. You hear how it sounds familiar? And if that's the case, then as Solomon is writing this love story, he's doing it and he's saying she brings peace. But it's also possible Solomon and Shalom, because they start the same, is actually a word that means peaceful too. And so in that regard, Solomon might be letting you know that the two have become one and have created a marriage of peace. It's kind of beautiful like that, isn't it? So the other main character we'll see in the story is the young man, and this is Solomon in the story. Solomon, he's the king, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yeah, exactly. You might say he's an expert or a lack of an expert in women. This is relevant to the story as we go through. He's the son of David and Bathsheba. And if you don't know this, David and Bathsheba had an adulterous relationship. Bathsheba got pregnant and then David had her husband killed because he was the king. And so God punished David in part, and there's a whole other sermon I don't have time to go into, but God punished David in part by allowing that baby to die. And when that baby died, David and Bathsheba came together again, and Bathsheba got pregnant with Solomon, who eventually became the king, the king who followed King David. He was the wisest man the world has ever known outside of Jesus himself. He literally had the golden age of Israel. He's talked about all over the place in history because he was unbelievably wealthy and wise. People came from foreign countries to learn from him. And of his 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs, this is the most beautiful one. Because here he explains to us what love ought to look like. And this is huge because now that you understand the characters, let's dig into what they say. The first thing that you're going to notice as you read this book is that the young woman, the Shulamite girl, she speaks first. Does that surprise any married people in the room? She speaks last. Does that surprise any married people in the room? And she speaks most. Does that surprise any married people in the room? The only person who would surprise in the room would be my wife. But anyway, moving on. So... What we see in Songs of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, notice what she has to say. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne, your name like its spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. Let's come back to that second verse, or verse 2. Kiss me and kiss me again. Your love is sweeter than wine. What she's saying to him is, oh man, I just enjoy being with you. I enjoy your presence. I enjoy your sweet kisses. I mean, it's not hard to understand this verse. It doesn't take a Hebrew scholar, right? Look at verse 3. This one's fascinating. So she says, how fragrant your cologne. Part of what she's saying, the wisdom for right now, is men, for some of you, 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 you smell funky. <laughs> you just do. Now, this is important because their daily bath would not have been daily. It would have been more like weekly or bi-weekly. So if you live in, an, in a culture that your, your primary means of caring for things is working outside in the sun with animals, whatever that might be, and you bathe once a week, some of you know. You married maybe a carpenter. You married maybe a mechanic. You married somebody who doesn't sit in an air-conditioned office. And the only thing to really gather from this is he cares about how he smells. And so what was common, and it's still common in parts of the world where this is true, you cover yourself up with a scent. So they would use strong cologne to basically try to offset the funky. 
And she's celebrating that. You don't smell funky. You smell fantastic. Men, take a shower. <laughs> Use some deodorant. I'll never forget, I think I was about fifth grade, and I was finally getting big enough to wrestle my sister, who was three years older than me, and she'd been messing with me, and I wrestled her to the ground, and I was on top, and I had her arms pinned down, and, and she goes, man, when was the last time you washed your armpits? And I said, what are you talking about? And she's like, you stink. I'm like, I don't smell anything. True story. Young men, sorry, I'm pointing over here, young guys. Young men. Young men literally cannot smell themselves. Your noses have not kept up with your body odors. And consequently, some of you men didn't have dads in the home. And so you never had somebody to tell you, smell good. But because some of you never had men in your home to have dads tell you to smell good, you also never had men in your home to tell you to act good. And that's really what she's getting at. You smell fantastic, but really it's your name that I'm most impressed with. This is huge. Yeah, he smells great, but his character is what she's really celebrating. Your name is like it's spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. And think about this. Here's my advice to you single ladies. If you're married, I'm sorry, there's not a lot you could do right now. <laughs> for all you single ladies, go back. Don't just look for a guy. Oh, yeah, so you can go to that. Don't just, sorry about that. Don't just look for a guy. Don't just look for a guy who smells good or has lots of money. You look for a man who's honorable. Does he care about doing the right thing because it's the right thing? Watch him. A piece of wisdom I'll give actually come out later in the text, later in the book itself, but um, how does he treat his mama? Because however he treats his mama is probably how he's going to treat you. So you young guys in the room, if you disrespect your mom, you'll probably disrespect your wife one day, your girlfriend one day. I realize there are exceptions to that, but it's a pretty safe rule to follow. Does he act with honor? And men, I would just say, now let's flip that for a second. Men, if you're in a profession that requires that you deceive or lie or don't tell the truth or be dishonest or withhold money or cheat in some way, quit your job. Quit your job. Better, Solomon writes, better to be poor and honorable than rich and dishonest. In fact, he actually says this in Proverbs 22, verse 1. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better, better than silver or gold. Put it in our context, better than houses, better than cars, better than clothes. So have character. Something that somebody else can look at and say, that's the kind of person I want to spend my life with. Now, let's get back to the book itself. She speaks again. Surprise. Take me with you, she says. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. And before everybody goes, oh, scandal. This doesn't mean that he literally took her into his bedroom. There's a few reasons I know. It doesn't fit the context both before and after. It doesn't make any sense. She's not saying he literally brought me into his bedroom. Parents in the room, you need to have rules in your home for your kids. My parents had a very clear rule. Girls are not allowed in your room. First of all, it's funky and you need to clean it, and we're saving you the embarrassment. And secondly, it's not appropriate. Bad things happen in that place. Things that are meant for marriage. Parents, if you don't have that rule in your home and your kids aren't obeying it, implement it now and you can blame me. I can handle it. I don't care. But this is important because what she is saying is he's brought me into the intimate place. Are you with me? 
He's brought me into that place where we share. Now, what we're going to see is how they got into this intimate place. They're not literally doing anything intimate or inappropriate, but she's saying he's brought me. Now, how do I know? Well, because of everything that happens before and after. They're not in a bedroom. In fact, we're going to see that. They're out in the garden like in a picnic. But she's expressing something. Now, what happens is from here to here is the voice changes. And you'll notice that in the, in the English translation, but it's not right up here. So what happens is what's called the daughters of Jerusalem or her young friends, depending on how you interpret that. It could be she's now speaking to her friends. You know, it's like when ladies get up and go to the bathroom and the whole group goes with them. This could be what's happening here, like all of her friends there and she's retelling the story to her friends. Or it could be she's now the queen and the story's being written from her voice as if to all the daughters of Jerusalem. But now they're speaking and it says oh how happy we are for you oh king we praise your love even more than wine and so what we see is these friends of hers are just celebrating this is beautiful and God made this gift yes you guys go and then she comes back this is her voice again the Shulamite and she says how right they are to adore you do you notice what she's doing she's celebrating in her man what she longs to see Men, the reason most of us don't do this is because we're afraid of vulnerability, aren't we? We've been taught our whole lives that being a man means you don't cry. Being a man means you don't show tenderness. Being a man means certain things. They don't hold up as scripture. There's something cultures created, and every culture is a little bit different. So being a man in America is a little different than being a man in other countries. And she is celebrating to him what she sees in him that she wants. Ladies, this is huge. Do you know, ladies, that your words in your man's life are the most powerful? There are guys at work who can make fun of him on the basketball court. They can mock his shot. Mine gets mocked all the time. And you know what? It doesn't mean anything. If my wife says something cruel, she never has. But if she had, it would destroy me. In fact, uh, about a week ago, actually it was a week ago, it was Easter Sunday, we went down to my in-laws and spent the night after church, I drove down there. My family went down earlier that weekend and I joined them. And when we got down there, at some point, my wife had a conversation late at night after I went to bed with her dad. And later, we were having a conversation, the two of us, and she said, I want to tell you something my dad said. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, like is he dying? Like what's happening? And she said, no, um, he went on and on about what a good man you are. And she started praising, you know, he said this, he said this, he said this, and, you know, I'll save those things for our conversation. But let me just tell you what happened. I beamed on my face from ear to ear. She celebrated in me what she wanted to see in me. Guess what I've tried harder to do over the last week? I've tried to live up to what she sees in me that she knows I can be. Now, at that same time, she's saying these things to me. I'm going through a list in my head of all the ways that I know I don't measure up. All the ways that I know I failed. She didn't have to tell me. I'm well aware of all the ways that I'm failing. But what she did is she drew out of me, brought out of me what she wants me to become. And I live up to that. Ladies, use your words very carefully. But men, you're about to get the same thing, so hang in there. Songs of Solomon, chapter 1, verse she's speaking still and she says I am dark but beautiful O women of Jerusalem she's talking to her friends again dark as the tents of Kedar dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents don't stare at me because I am dark 
The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards. So I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. This is huge. So go back with me to the last verse. So part of what's going on here, number one, is her brothers apparently have forced her to work in the sun. And because she's had to work in the sun, her skin has been baked. Now I realize in our culture, we actually pay people to bake our skin. I don't get it. In this culture, and in many parts of the world today, this is a bad thing. When, when we went to Taiwan to bring home our son, I'll never forget one day I gave Rachel a nap. We were in Taipei, and uh, Rachel was taking a nap at the hotel, and I was walking from the hotel to the mall, like across the street practically. It was just a couple blocks, and I had my son. He had a little hat on to protect his head from the sun, um, and, and we're walking along, and this little Asian lady shops, I mean, she is laying into me. I have no idea what she said. She's speaking Mandarin, and she's spitting all over the place. She's just yelling and pointing and pointing her umbrella and pointing at my son and just going off. I'm like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I promise, ma'am. I'll get him right inside right now. You're slowing us down, ma'am. I have no idea what you're saying, ma'am. Yes. Okay. Can I go now, ma'am? It's just the most awkward thing in the world, but skin is a very big deal. And in that culture, if you were inside, say inside a house or inside a tent, you were well cared for. Your skin was really nice. Well, it's not much different in America, except for it's the opposite almost for some reason, and in that culture, what she's saying is, my brothers, they forced me to work outside, so my skin, it wasn't beautiful. My skin is very dark. It's been burned by the sun. And what is she expressing right now in this invulnerable moment in the bedroom? She's expressing her insecurities. I'm beautiful, but I'm not like those other ladies. In other words, Solomon, king, the one with all the power and the might, you can have anybody you want. Why in the world did you choose me? And she is practically begging him to tell her, why would you choose me? And men, far too many of you keep your mouth shut on this area. And I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I've been married 17 years. I've had roughly 52 Sundays in all those 17 years of seeing my wife. And I still blow it. I did good today because I talked about it two services. My wife, though, right now in our life, she gets up, she gets three little boys ready, uh, just about seven, five, and two. She gets herself ready. She spends whatever amount of time, 30 minutes, an hour, that she can spend on herself getting all dolled up. And she's told me a million times, I don't care if a single person in that church thinks I'm attractive. I just want you to think I'm attractive. And consequently, she'll come in, and I'm talking to all of you, and I'm thinking about my sermon, and there's my kids, and I'll hug them and kiss them, and, and I forget to look at her and say, wow, you look beautiful. And instead, I'll say, hey, how are you? Or why are you so late? And she'll go, that's it? And even before we had kids, I would be guilty of this. And sometimes we get in the car after the entire day has gone by, and she'll say, you know, you've not once said that I look pretty today. Do I not look pretty? Uh, you know, I thought it as soon as I saw you. Yeah, sure you did. <laughs> it doesn't really matter at this point. I had to ask. Men, I can guarantee you, guarantee you, I don't care how attractive your wife is. I don't care how hard she works out, how many meals she doesn't eat, or slim fast drinks she drinks. She's insecure about how she looks. And she's concerned about how she looks compared to how everybody else looks. And she doesn't need to know that she's the most beautiful person in the world. I can prove it. And she just needs to know how you think. And are you using your words to build her up or to tear her down? I'm sure there's 10 things that you could think of. She's thought of 20 that you might wish were different if you were picking the ideal woman, but you picked this woman. And women, trust me, good men, men full of character, they don't need you to be a supermodel. They just need you to try, and they'll love you for it. 
I remember reading an article, I was a youth minister, and I actually found this recently, I cleaned out all these old files, and I found this article, an interview from a, a number of famous models, but it was like 15 years ago, but ladies like Cindy Crawford and others like her, and in the article, they were talking about all these things that they thought were better on other models. And so here's these supermodels, the best of the best of the day. I realize today, you may laugh at that if you're younger especially, but they were the best of the best of the day, and they're pointing out another model. Oh, she's, she's got better arms than I do. I love her hair. I wish I had her forehead, her lips, blah, blah, blah. These are the supermodels, and that's the point, men. Every woman in here has an insecurity about something or many things on their body. And what they really need to know is when you look at them, what do you see? Now, when we go to this next verse, we see this. I'm dark, and it's dark because my brothers have forced me. By the way, it's possible her brothers were looking out for her. It's possible her brothers were trying to protect her purity by forcing her to work in the fields. But she says, I didn't even get to care for my own vineyard because I was working on their vineyard. So literally, I didn't get to take care of my body because I was forced to do their work for them. She's insecure. So what do you do with a woman who's insecure? Well, first, let me point out this. Both the woman and the man are, in, are intoxicated primarily by the other person's character. Before I get into how he resolves this insecurity in her heart, I want you to see this. It was obvious we were talking about the man, right? Because she's like, your name is better than the cologne. Your, your, your reputation is better than the cologne. But notice with her, the reason he's writing this song about her is because she's a hard, stinking worker. She's not sitting around the house letting everybody else do all the work. She's a hard worker, and she's out there working hard. So even though Solomon sees her skin, and it doesn't line up to all the beauty of the day, even though Solomon could literally pick the woman he wants, he picks her. Why? Because of her character. So ladies, you're really no different than the men. And men, if you're single in this room, don't just run after the most beautiful girl you can find. Because charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. Instead, you find, you find a woman full of character and you'll have a happy life the rest of your life. Let's look at this next verse. Let's see how Solomon deals with all this, but it's not his turn yet. There's still a woman talking. Verse 7. She says, tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock today? Where are you leading your flock today? Where will you rest your sheep at noon? For why should I wander like a prostitute among your friends and their flocks? Now, if you don't get what she's saying, you're like, what in the world is all this talk? This is beautiful. Okay, ladies, first of all, in our culture today, there are far too many of you being far too forward. I don't know if you know this, ladies, but men actually like the pursuit. It drives us nuts. It drives us crazy that we have to work so hard to get your attention, but that's part of the fun for us. I'm not going to lie. Part of the fun is us working hard, being a peacock, showing all our colors, and going, hey, look at these colors. <laughs> you like these guns? Anything of that? Or however you do it, right? Like my car, baby? Whatever it is. That's half the fun. But it's not wrong or sinful or inappropriate for a lady to make her presence known. And so what she's saying to Solomon is, just let me know where you're going to be today so I can be there. I don't know what's going to come out in my wife's interview where you're, oh, you all are going to make fun of us in a couple weeks. But I know this. My wife went out of her way to make her presence known. Out of her way to make her presence known. And so she would literally just make sure she was around when I was doing stuff. I didn't really have a chance to look at any other woman because I was so busy being with her. When I would probe and try to find out, like, hey, do you like me? Are you interested in me? Like, hey, you think we should go out? You know, however I did that, I don't remember. It's been a few years now. I've slept a few nights. But she would never be overly forthright. She would never give too much away. She made me keep trying and keep pursuing and keep chasing. But she always made her presence known. And that's what she's doing here. But notice, this lady's huge. Notice how she's doing this. Why should I wander like a prostitute? What she's saying is, don't make me come out and parade myself like the other women, the women who have uh, maybe bad intentions, not honorable intentions, 
The way this would apply today, don't make me wear clothes that draw your eyes to other parts of my body instead of my heart or my mind. Don't make me act voluptuously. Don't make me act inappropriately in order to get your attention. How can I be in your presence? Where are you going to be later so that I can just happen to run into you? There's wisdom in this, ladies. You don't have to dress like that to get the results you're looking for. If you just make your presence known and be a woman of character and integrity, he will take notice. And if he doesn't, then he's not a man of character that you want to spend your life with anyway. Because if he's going to fix his eyes on all those things on you, he'll fix his eyes on all those things on everybody else. So men, get it together. Stop chasing after the wrong things so that you might find the right one. Some of you are like, this hurts. I know. But finally, he speaks. Verse 8, and he says, if you don't know, oh, most beautiful woman. Now notice this. What did she already express to him? I'm concerned my skin is dark. I don't look like the other women. They get to spend time on their bodies. I don't have as much time to spend on my body. Where are you going to be later? Hey, can I come and see you? Yeah, come and see me. Oh, beautiful woman, beautiful woman. He immediately addresses her insecurity. Let me just tell you, you look fantastic. Follow the trail of my flock and graze your young goats by the shepherd's tents. Do you know what he just said to her? You can come after me. And then, and men, don't miss this, he provides safety for her. You know, it's not safe for a lady to be out among the men in the fields. It could be a very dangerous place. And he says, just follow along the path of my flocks, and don't worry, when you get there, I've already got to take it care of. Just go ahead and put your young goats over there by the shepherd's tent. My boys know what's up. They know to let you go. He's already arranged her safety and security. And men, if you can make her feel safe and secure, far too many men hurt, abuse, use their strength, their power, whatever it is, to take advantage of other women. If you will be a man who doesn't do that, but who goes out of his way to create safe places for her, she will, she will make her presence known among you. But look at what it says next. I love this. You are as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. You probably shouldn't call your girlfriend or wife, a horse. <laughs> I don't necessarily recommend you do everything that, that, that he does, but what he does do is, notice this, Pharaoh has many horses and his army has many horses, but Pharaoh rode on the best horse that there is. It was a beautiful, beautiful stallion that stood out even in color among the others. So what's he doing? He's celebrating her dark skin as something to be celebrated. It's beautiful. It stands out among the others. It's nothing to be insecure about. He goes right to the heart of her insecurity. And even though it doesn't measure up to the standard of the day, he says, you stand out to me as one who is beautiful. And she is just beginning to melt in front of him. In fact, he goes on. He doesn't even stop there. How lovely are your cheeks. Your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck enhanced by a string of jewels. We will make for your earrings, sorry, we will make for you earrings of gold and beads of silver. It's always good, by the way, men, if you're going to promise to buy her jewelry. However, just notice here he's celebrating her beauty again. So men, my encouragement to you is to look at your girlfriend, your bride, or your bride-to-be and celebrate something about her that is appropriate. Notice he's not celebrating awkward things. He's not celebrating certain body parts. He's elementing, he's highlighting the, the things that are out there for all to see, her cheeks, her neck, her ears. You just have a beautiful face. I love your hair. 
He even later goes on, and we'll look at this, even later goes on and celebrates her eyes. Keep focused on the things that are the most important. Look, she speaks again because she can't let him talk for too long. Verse 12, the king is lying on his couch, enchanted by the fragrance of my perfume. My lover is like a sachet of myrrh lying between my breasts. He is like a bouquet of sweet henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. And some of you are like, these words are in the Bible? God created all of them. So we're moving on. What, he's, what she is now saying to him, what she's celebrating is, it was common in that day, in the same way the men would wear cologne to cover up their scent, women would often wear a necklace with a little sachet on it, and it would have some sweet-smelling spice, a myrrh or something in it. And it's the same thing. She's saying, he's now close enough to me to smell the myrrh coming from my necklace. They're clearly in some sort of position, likely lying down on the grass. Remember, she followed his flocks out into the woods. The trees are all around them, and they are celebrating each other. You are beautiful. You have a great neck and great ears, and you're amazing. You've got this great reputation, and you smell fantastic, not like I would have thought. And they are just enjoying each other's presence. And notice this. They are not using their words to cut down. They are using their words to build up. Virtually every... uh, Virtually every couple who ends up in my office in marital counseling, this is the number one problem. At some point, they said something that they can't take back, they cannot undo. And we have to figure out how to heal those wounds in grace and in mercy, but they're spoken. This is why James tells us the tongue is an evil. It's a restless evil. In fact, anybody can control it, can control his whole body. All it takes is one little spark from this tongue and a whole forest is ablaze, or I would say even a marriage. That's why he says, if you can't say anything good, then don't what? Don't say anything at all. Just keep your mouth shut. But he also goes on and he says, look, here's the proportion. Be slow to get angry, be slow to speak, and be quick to listen. You might even say you have two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately. When you're going to speak, don't do all the talking. And when you do talk, do all the building up and none of the tearing down. And I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen to every single relationship in this room if we were to use our words carefully just like that. So now look at how this unfolds. <laughs> Verse five, he speaks again. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful your eyes are like doves. What did he just do? He just celebrated her skin color again. Your eyes are like doves, meaning what? They're white, they're peaceful, they're beautiful. Her skin is dark, so what makes it pop? Her skin is dark, so what pops is her eyes. It's this contrasted color. It's just another way for him to take her insecurities and tear down the wall. He's going out of his way to make sure that she feels safe and beautiful in his presence. He's not at all pointing out all the things she needs to change or work on or do different or do I look fat in this dress? He's not even going there. And she speaks again, verse 16. You are so handsome, my love. Pleasing beyond words, the soft grass is our bed. Fragrant cedar branches are the beams of our house, and pleasant-smelling firs are the raptors. They have now gotten to this place of complete infatuation. They are enthralled by each other's words and smells and presence. They have gotten away off. They've left the flock out by the shepherd's tent, and they are alone. And for those of you who don't know, this is a dangerous place to be. Things happen when you create this kind of infatuation in intimate moments. In case you didn't know that. And that's why we get to these next few verses. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
She says, again, she's speaking, I am the spring crocus blooming on the Sharon Plain, the lily of the valley. What she's saying is, in the same way in spring, these flowers pop up and they just come alive. I am coming alive in your presence. You've tore down the walls of my insecurity. You've made me feel safe and comfortable in your presence. And I just feel like I'm ready to burst forth with life. I love being in your presence. And he says, he responds in verse two, like a lily among the thistles is my darling among young women. He's looking at her and what's he doing again? Among all those other women that you're all afraid of, he's doing the same thing. It's like the third time that he goes to her insecurity and says, you are special. One time I bought my wife 11 red roses and one white one, and I said, you are special. Among all the other women out there, you are the only one for me. And men, you could steal that one. <laughs> Verse three, she speaks again. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among all other young men, she's returning the favor. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. Let me just deal with this for a second. I've listened to actual pastors who've perverted this text and made it say something it's clearly not saying. And I know it doesn't because just a few verses later, we're told what really is going on here. There's nothing inappropriate going on here. There is, there is a special moment, a moment of infatuation being shared here and it's building in intensity, but there's nothing else happening here. What she's saying with this is I'm in my lover's presence. And what he's doing is he is Casting shade, I know it's a popular phrase today, he's casting shade over her by protecting her, he's provided a safe place for her, he's tore down the walls of insecurity for her, and she is coming alive in his presence because she feels totally safe to do that. And there's maybe nothing more here that would encourage you in your relationships than if the men would use the power, the might, the wisdom, the prominence that God has given them to provide protection, safety, security and removing of insecurity in your significant other's place. Allow your wives and wives to be to feel safe in your presence. You're not gonna take advantage of her. You're not gonna hurt her. You're not gonna abuse her. You're not gonna misuse your power and strength over her. And she will come alive in your presence. Just recently after that conversation actually with my wife, uh, had a chance to practice some of these things. You know, the problem with teaching the word of God is you can either be a hypocrite and tell everybody else what to do or you can actually start practicing it. I wish I could say I do all these things perfectly. I don't. And God convicted me on some things that I needed to do better and so I started implementing them. And it's amazing to watch my wife come alive. Instead of correcting or rebuking or teaching or telling her, hey, I think you ought to do this or I think you ought to try that or I've noticed this or that needs to stop. The other night I just had to come to Jesus except for I'm the one who brought her to Jesus and I just said, look, I think I've been messing up. I don't think I've supported you well. I think I've encouraged you well. This happened a week ago and I know you apologized but I never apologized for what I did and I just started being very open and vulnerable. I brought her literally into my, well, not literally, metaphorically into my bedroom and just shared very openly with her. Here's some things I think you're doing a fantastic job. Here's some things I think you're doing amazing in. Here's some ways that I feel like I have failed you and I just want you to know I believe in you and I love you and I will just tell you guys it has been amazing to watch my wife come alive as I've used my words to build her up and not tear her down and the far too many of us have a list in our head of things we think the other person needs to work on let me tell you they already know the list and if they don't the best way to help them know it is not to say and another thing you know the best way to get their attention is to get on your knees and pray dear God would you help them to see would you open their eyes? 
And then let God either provide the moment for you to share it, they ask, or whatever it is, or let God convict them. This has happened more times than I could count in my marriage where I saw something my wife didn't see yet, and rather than just go to her and tell her, just praying for her, and she would come to me. It's amazing. Sometimes the same day, sometimes a week or two later, that's hard. But she would come to me and say, hey, God's been convicting me. I need to work on this. It's like, dude, you're listening. That's amazing. (laughs) And she tells me that the same thing happens the other direction. So you don't have to use your words to do mean things. You could just use your words to do God-honoring things. So look at the rest of what she says here, and then I want to make a really big hard point. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, for I am weak with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. What position are they in? His left arm is under my head, under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Most likely, they are laying down side by side. It's also possible it's something different. Regardless, what they're doing is they're in a very, very, very intimate moment. Probably too intimate. I'll get to that in a second. When she says, strengthen me with raisin cakes, most of you are like, what in the world is all this weird poetic talk about? A raisin cake was often used as an aphrodisiac. It was supposed to uh, uh, enlighten the senses because raisins had many seeds in them. The thought was if you ate them, then you would be fruitful and multiply. That's pretty much the bottom line of what's going on there. So she has created this intimate moment. They're together in the woods. The trees are all around. Everything smells fantastic. They're using their words to tear down insecurities. And now he has her in in an intimate embrace, his left hand under her head, his right hand around her but then we get to verse 7 and I want you to hear this she says promise me O women of Jerusalem by the gazelles and wild deer not to awaken love until the time is right do you get what she's saying there so Solomon has written this love poem to tell you about the journey of a couple who are falling in love and their infatuation is taking over and now what happened is they have created a moment where something is going to happen that isn't God honoring and I know for some of you that's surprising But the biblical teaching from beginning to end is that intimacy, physical intimacy between a man and a woman is reserved for the marriage bed, the marriage bed, not the soon to be married bed, not the I want to marry you one day bed, the marriage bed. And so Solomon has taken us on this journey all the way up to chapter two, verse seven, to tell us, wait, don't go there. Everywhere we just took you is beautiful and it's fantastic and it's part of the romantic story, but hold back those feelings. Because once you open the door to those emotions, it's very hard to keep the door shut. So I want to give you some wisdom as it relates to this. Our culture has lied to us. Listen, I know if you're visiting, you're not sure about Jesus, you don't even know whether to go all in, just please hear me on this and then consider and pray about what I've said. But the culture has lied to you. The culture has said to you that you need to um, try before you buy. You need to move in together. You need to live together before you get married. Because what if it doesn't work out? And you know what? If you just look at it logically, roughly 40, 50% of marriages ending in divorce totally get it. Totally get it from a rational standpoint. But it's called faith for a reason. It's not always rational. And here's the point. God made marriage, which means he can work it out, which means you can actually figure it all out after you say, I do. It's amazing. So give yourself some time in the dating process, in the courting process, to spend together getting to know their character, not engaging in physical intimacy, because by the way, it always makes things harder, not easier. The Bible is crystal clear on this. When I was a youth minister, the students would ask me all the time, so Matt, tell me the verse that says I can't do fill in the blank. And I said, if you're looking for a verse that dismisses everything you can think of to do with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, I can't give you a verse for every single one of them. I can't. The human sinful heart will find the rule and then find a way around the rule if that's what you want. If you want to know how do I honor God, 
And how do I get God to honor my marriage? Then there are tons of verses like verse seven. Do not awaken love until it's time. When is it time? Your honeymoon night. There are tons of them just like that. In Ephesians, I believe it's verse five, chapter five, verse two, I think, where Paul says, let there be not even a hint of sexual immorality among you. Not even a hint. Well, what is a hint? Well, the thing about a hint is it could be different for you. It could be different for me. But a hint in and of itself means it's a pretty strict line. But again, if you're looking for a way around it, you'll find a way around it. If you want to be married and have God honor your marriage, then live for him today. So here's my advice. If you're living with the person that you would like to marry one day and you want God to bless the marriage, then move out today. And some of you, I know because I've talked to you, you're like, but we can't afford it. Then find a way around it. Call a friend, call a family member, move in with them, ask them if you can live rent-free for a season. Sell your house, I don't care. Get a second job, man. Get a third job, man. Show her your character by how you live. And don't do it because a preacher said so. Do it because God's convicting you that this is the right thing to do. And that means don't engage in any more physical activity until you say, I do. And then have a fantastic night together. Because I'm telling you, in marital counseling, premarital counseling, where couples have chosen not to do this, and they've engaged a lot prior to their marriage, the honeymoon just doesn't have the same celebration it once had. But for couples who take my advice and they do this, it's amazing how beautiful their marriage is because they're submitting and surrendering to God's will and God's ways. Now, some of you have blown it already. You've already crossed lines you wish you'd never crossed. You can't undo the line you crossed. Every married couple in this room who's been there will tell you those memories will last a lifetime. But what you can do, whether you're currently married or single, what you can do is redeem your past in the blood of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is this. You can literally choose, as Paul says, he says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So when Satan tries to bring up something from your past and he tries to remind you of it and say, oh yeah, remember this person, remember that thing you did, remember how great that was or whatever it is, remember we used to do that? When he does that, you simply take that thought and you say, no, I've redeemed this in the blood of Jesus. So I crucified it with him on the cross, meaning he forgave me and I'm never gonna do it again until I'm married. Even if it's in your marriage, Satan tries to take you back there Redeem it. Don't let the enemy win. Because ultimately what fantasies and dreams and hopes about somebody you're not married to will do is it'll ruin your marriage in a matter of time. Because nobody can be perfect and live up to the dream in your head. And I know I'm touching on a lot of nerves right now. Let me just give last kind of closing advice to some everybody in the room, but especially married people in the room. Would you carefully, carefully choose your words? I want you to take on an assignment between this Sunday and next Sunday when we pick back up chapter two, verse eight. Would you work this week to not speak a single mean or critical word? Not one. And if you do, would you be willing to try to come up with three encouraging or kind words? I don't mean three literal words, but three things. So for every critical thing you say, you're going to overwhelm that with three kind things. And your spouse, hopefully, is sitting here. Your girlfriend, hopefully, is sitting here. Boyfriend, hopefully, is sitting here. They're going to be like, what is up to you? Oh, yeah, Matt Sermon. That's right. I paid him for that. I forgot. <laughs> and I know this is going to be hard. I know it is because I've been trying it. But I want to encourage you to try anyway because what you will see is your spouse begin to bloom to begin to come alive and feel safe in your arms again. And if your marriage is really struggling, here's what I know. Here's what I know. 
you may yet raise it from the dead. Don't quit. It's not over yet. We're going to sing about this right now. And listen, I know this message falls over the place. Communion people, stay here till the song is done. Rhett will direct you. I just want to sing about the goodness of Jesus because while we're talking about marriage and relationships, I know there's no perfect marriage, including my own. And I have struggles and I need the grace of God and so do you. And that's why we go to the cross over and over and over again, asking him to strengthen us and help us and give us the grace we need. And that's why I want to pray over you. Would you do me a favor? Would you just stand up right now? And uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And if you are struggling in your marriage and you're sitting next to your spouse, would you just grab their hand? Men, would you maybe put your arm around your spouse? Pull them close and say, look, at one point we were in love like this. We can be there again. And I want to pray over you. And if you are dating or engaged in the room and you're not being appropriate, I want you to, it's okay. You can grab their hand. You can put their, your arm around them and pull them close. Say, let's talk later. And it'll freak them out, but that's okay. Sometimes that freaking out period is part of what God's doing. Let's pray. Oh, great God. We thank you for Solomon writing this beautiful love song that we could study and look at and know what it looks like when it's at its best. But so many of us, God, have not found it at its best. God, I pray for the man or the woman in here who has gone too far outside of marriage and has deep regret. Right now, your spirit is convicting them of their sin and the things they've done that were not honoring to you. Lord, I pray through the power of Jesus, would you convict them of their sin and then free them of it. Free them of it as they give it to you. God, I pray right now for young couples who are engaging in physical activity, intimacy, they have no business dabbling in because they have not said, I do. And God, I pray right now you would convict them to commit that they're not gonna do it anymore until they get married. God, if they can't control themselves, that he'll be bold enough to go buy a ring and ask her that they might live righteously and you would bless their marriage. And God, I pray right now for the couples in this room who are struggling. God, I pray that this series, even this message, would convict them and encourage them. Would you resurrect what they once had, this love, this infatuation that they once had, that you grew into a marriage where they said, I do. Would you do that right now? And God, I pray, I pray as we all practice using our words to build up and not tear down, would you transform our homes? We love you. Thank you that Jesus gives us the grace to make this happen. In Jesus' name.